0: For the past few days, I was at the Evangelical Covenant Church annual meeting, which they call Gather, in really sweaty Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, it was like 110 degrees feels like temperature. It was just absolutely brutal. But in the midst of an incredibly difficult few days, I walked away with a profound reminder of what our denomination and our church was founded on. You see, all throughout the discussions, which as anybody who's ever attended one of those meetings knows are many, repeated as a constant strain from not only our main stage speakers, the people who are leading our denomination, but also from the delegates who got up and spoke at microphones, was that we are people of the book, that we believe in and we hold to the authority of the scriptures as given by God. A distinct part of us being a covenant church, there's, there's, there's six things that make covenant churches distinct. One of them is this, that we believe that this book, that the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, as given in the Old and the New Testaments, is living and it's active and it's breathing and it's the only doctrine for faith, rule, and conduct. We together, as churches, believe, as First Timothy reminds us, that all Scripture... Is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And that's why, as a church, the series like the one that we're in right now, Genesis EP. That's why this series for us is so absolutely. Thrilling because we love this book and we live out of this book and we love opportunities for us to say Let's take 11 weeks and let's dive in to this book. Let's dive into genesis There is so much here in genesis There are stories all throughout genesis of closeness and division of family ties that bind and of broken relationships, of exile and of famine, of war and of peace, of promise and of hope. And these stories, if we're honest, if any of us have been reading along, they're often not easy stories, are they? They don't have idyllic beginnings, middles, and oftentimes they don't even have idyllic endings. But as we read this book, We do it grappling with and understanding and learning from the journeys of these real people who form the real foundations of our lives and of our faith. And what a treasure it is for us as a church to spend a summer getting to do that together. There's a place to write this in your notes. We're people of the book. The stories of Genesis, there are stories. These stories are our stories. It's our story in the sense that we believe that what's contained in this book, that we believe that what's contained in Genesis, it's the foundation and the historical underpinnings of who we are as people, of what's true about our very core and humanity and life as people of God. And it's also our story in the sense that we so often see our own lives and our own stories in the lives and the stories of the people contained within this book, the people of God who are called out and on a mission to know him and to be more like him, attempting to live into the reality of their God-createdness and their God-likeness, walking through the joys and the struggles, trusting in and wrestling with his promises, attempting to walk in his way to the glory of his name, like so many of us today. And this is no more true than in today's story, which is coming to us from Genesis 16. And I'll be honest, when we did our brainstorming session and we said, we're diving into Genesis this summer, what are the greatest hits and the deep cuts? The deep cut, that was my one where I said, I love this story, is the story of Abram and Hagar in Genesis 16. This one was my contribution to Sermon Summit, right? Because I love this story. And it's a story we don't get to hear often. This is actually in the five weeks of the series. This is our very first deep cut. This is our very first story that we don't often hear, that we don't often read, or that if we do, we don't really get a chance to dive into the story of Abram and Hagar. And I'm so excited to go through this with you. And as I read it, I had a picture in my mind when I proposed it of what today was going to look like. And I really wanted to focus in on Hagar's story. But as I read this book, I realized we can't even get to Hagar's story if we don't look at Abram's story too. And so if you've ever heard the promise of God, but you found yourself failing to trust that it could ever come true, wondering what your role is in that journey, today's story is one that you'll connect with. And if you've ever found yourself out in the wilderness feeling mistreated, feeling separated and fearful, today's story is for you too. There are two stories in today's reading and in today's message that run parallel with each other. And if I were an English teacher, which I'm not, but it was one of my favorite subjects... I would almost go as so, so far as to say these two stories are foils of each other. Who remembers foils from English in middle school, right? Not many. So foils, right, is when one person's story, we'll see how well I would actually ever do as an English teacher, right? Foils are when one person's story helps to illuminate parts of the other story that we might not otherwise see. And so in this story we're reading today of Abram and Hagar, there are parts of Abram's journey that give us insight into Hagar's. And there are parts of Hagar's journeys that give us insight into Abram's. These two stories running parallel to each other, both work together. And these two stories are crucial for our historical foundation and for our lives today. But in order to even begin telling the story, we actually need to back up and we have to be reminded of the story of Abram. And as Jason introduced him in the very first week of Genesis EP, Abram is an older man who's living in a land, when God comes to him and he says, Abram, I want to take you on a journey. And he invites him to walk with him, to leave the land he's known, to leave the land of his ancestors and to walk with God to a land that God will show him. A land where God promises to make him a great nation, to make his name great. And it would appear from the beginning that there is absolutely no hesitation on the part of Abram to walk with God on this journey. He gathers his family and his things and he begins this God-given mission. But the story soon begins to unravel. A famine hits the land he settled in. And in his panic over his security and his life, he gives his wife, Sarai, to Pharaoh, which causes more calamity in Pharaoh's household. And so Pharaoh throws them out and they're forced to leave Egypt. So Abram and Sarai and his nephew Lot and a few other family members leave. Then Abram and Lot separate. And then there's war and there's kidnapping and victory and reunion and blessing. And that's literally just three chapters. I mean, that is insane. There is enough in those three chapters that you can make a six, you know, a six series movie out of it, right? There is so much in three chapters that happens in Abram's life. But that brings us all the way up to Genesis 16 in the shortcut version. So in Genesis 15, actually, Abram is beginning to have doubts about God's plans for him. And I mean, after all of that, who wouldn't, right? He's beginning to have doubts about God's plan for him, that it's really good, that the promises are really going to come true. He's feeling discouraged. And so in Genesis 15:1, this journey that's already been painful culminates in Abram saying this. Genesis 15:1 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Of a great name and a great nation is beginning to look rough And in the years since god's initial promise sarai has failed to conceive And only one option remains for abram to leave his entire inheritance To a named heir from outside of his family someone who's not related to him a servant named eliezer of damascus It's the socially acceptable way to go and in abram's mind. It's the only option. It's the natural response It's the option that looked at the facts There was no heir looked at the promise of god that wasn't coming true and thought that those two things couldn't possibly match up But god's a god of great promises And so it continues In verse four and if you don't have a bible with you, we would love to send you home with one today There are ones at those back tables. So continuing in verse four it says and behold The word of the lord came to him This man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are even able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And then let's fast forward down to Genesis 16, verse one. The story of Abram's heir continues. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I obtain children for her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Did you notice what just happened there? In less than one chapter, the entire story begins to shift dramatically. At the beginning of chapter 15, Abram is given this promise by God. He says, count the stars if you're even able. That's how many descendants you're going to have. At the end of the chapter, God starts to fulfill the promise on his own. And it says in Genesis 15 that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then, just a few verses later... In chapter 16, Sarai brings doubt into the equation. She makes a suggestion that Abram take her servant in order to give her a child. And the text says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Sarai's request wasn't unheard of. It was actually common in the area they were living to use surrogacy to gain an heir. But it wasn't God's purpose for Abram and Sarai. It was Sarai's solution. It was her voice, and Abram listened. We're often not too far from Abram's story in our own lives. We're confronted with two voices, just as what happened in the garden. A voice of the promise of God and a voice of doubt that starts to creep in. Whose voice we listen to matters. And in just a few verses, Abram goes from believing the Lord to listening to Sarai and choosing to follow what she had said instead. So let's continue It says, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. And shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord. Who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said truly here. I have seen him. Who looks after me. Therefore the well was called. Beer It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And hagar bore abram a son and abram called the name of his son whom hagar bore ishmael Abram was 86 years old when hagar bore ishmael to abram So this story is a tale of two characters The first is abram a man with the promise of an heir and not just one heir But many descendants as many as there are stars in the sky a lineage. That's absolutely uncountable and within moments Doubt starts to kick in The amazing work that god has done the amazing promise god has given all that he's demonstrated Passes through abram's mind and the voice of sarai begins to grow louder So he follows her voice He seeks after her plan not the one god gave to him and soon the entire plan starts to fall into chaos Relationships are broken shame enters and the height of the promise turns into the depth of their pain As I read this story over and over and over again to prepare, I couldn't help but notice how absolutely similar the progression of this story is to nearly every other story in the book of Genesis, right? How absolutely similar it is. Everything from Adam and Eve in the garden to Noah to Jacob, who we'll cover in a few weeks, to many of the greatest hits and deepest cuts. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Stories in Genesis follow a predictable pattern. Last week, Chris gave you two in a row. This week, I'm giving you six in a row. Stories in Genesis follow a predictable pattern. God promises. They doubt. They take it into their own hands. Chaos comes. God remains faithful. In the garden, God promises his presence and he makes one request. He says, just don't eat of the fruit of that tree. You can have any other tree, just not that one. And one chapter later, doubt kicks in and the serpent says, did God really say that? Did God really make that promise? And they take it into their own hands and chaos comes and all of humanity has changed. But God says, don't worry. Someday, The serpent will be crushed. God remains faithful. And the stories that we see in Genesis, this pattern we see, it's often our story. I think we often see the same pattern in our own faith journeys. We hear and we know and we trust and we believe that God has good plans for our lives. That his promises can be trusted and that his word reigns above all. And then some time passes and the promise seems bleak. And other voices speak louder. And doubt creeps in little by little, telling us that God can't be trusted, that we have to take matters into our own hands. And so we do. And then everything feels chaotic in our lives. There's tension and there's pain in our jobs and our homes. We're grasping for futures that weren't designed for us. In our lives, there are times when, like Abram, we're often impatient for the plans of God to pass quickly. There's a place to write that in your notes. We're often impatient for the plans of God to pass quickly quickly. It starts to look a little bleak and we push for the timeline to move faster And we start listening to other voices But that's just one story in this passage. That's just one story in the story of abram and hagar That's just one part of the narrative that god is building here. There's also hagar The story of god's faithfulness in the midst of pain and in chaos of her story hagar is mistreated In fact, the hebrew word that's used for that is the same word that's used later when the israelites are in slavery She's mistreated by her mistress She's pregnant. She's alone. She's she has a child that she's afraid may never be fully hers And she's found by the angel of the lord by a spring by a well And the angel or the messenger of the Lord asks Hagar the same rhetorical type of question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and to where are you going? Sounds familiar to God asking in the garden, where are you? She pours her heart out to God. She's vulnerable about her mistreatment and God responds in faithfulness. He tells her to return, and this isn't a moment where God's condoning her going back to an abusive relationship, right? She tells, he tells her to return because a wilderness is no place for an expectant mother. And then he offers her a promise. And the promise probably sounds familiar from just one chapter before. He says to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Two characters. Two promises. But two very different responses. God continues to say through his messenger, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This name Ishmael, it matters. In fact in a book that I love called god has a name by a pastor named john mark cummer He writes this about names He says in ancient writings like the bible A name was way more than a label you use to make a dinner reservation or sign up for spin class or file your taxes with the irs Right. It was more than what's on your starbucks cup when they call your name Your name was your identity your destiny, the truth hidden in the marrow of your bones. It was a one word moniker for the truest thing about you, your inner essence, your inner Tomness or your Ruthness. One Old Testament scholar writes In the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity or origin or birth circumstances or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. And we see these names all throughout Genesis. Now Ishmael means God hears in Hebrew. It's a name given by God to Hagar to mark this moment and this story, to remind her every time she says it, that in this moment and in every moment that follows, every moment of fear and longing and doubt and trouble, God hears. Every time that she would say Ishmael's name, God hears. Every time she would call him to dinner, God hears. Every time she would say good morning or good night to him, God hears. Every time that raising him felt like a challenge like it does for a lot of parents, God hears. And in response to this, Hagar gives God a name of her own. The scripture says this, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. El Roy in Hebrew, a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well, the place where this entire moment happened, was called Be'er Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Ishmael. God hears. Elroy, God sees. There's a place to write this in your notes. In our own lives, we are seen in our wilderness by a God that knows and loves us. You see, this moment in the scripture, and part of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this story, this moment is significant. This is the first moment in all of the scriptures that someone gives God a name, that someone says to God, here is what you are like. Here's your character. Here's the innermost parts of who you are. And it's given by this slave woman, an Egyptian, in the middle of her distress and in the middle of a response to a God that asked her to name her son God here. She says, you are a God that sees me and God sees us too. And whatever wilderness looks like for you today or in the future, you are never outside of the sight of God. When you feel far from him, he is coming near to you. God sees, God knows, God loves us. At the end of this story, Hagar returns to Abram and Sarai. And it says this, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So like we see our own stories reflected in the story of Abram and the story of Hagar We also see our story reflected in the end of this because our lives are flesh and bone Reminders of god's attentiveness to us They're flesh and bone reminders of god's attentiveness to us Abram names his son god hears The name given to Hagar for him by God. And this, a lot of commentary writers say, is a sobering reminder for Abram and Sarai. A sobering reminder that God was hearing his and Sarai's distress all along. That he saw it the whole time. And that all they had to do was continue to cry out. Just as Hagar's story and Ishmael's name served as a demonstration of the abiding love of God. The participation in our stories, the God who sees and the God who hears her, her story and her return to tell it to those who doubted the promise would undoubtedly have been a constant reminder for this couple that God is present, even in the midst of their suffering too. And in our own stories, our stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of chaos and of peace, in the midst of stress and anxiety, of salvation, and our life change, our flesh and blood demonstrations for the rest of the world of God's saving power and presence to us. It's interesting, actually. As I read this story, I couldn't help but think about another story in another book about another well and God. In John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, on a hot day, Jesus is taking a shortcut through Samaria. And he stops at this well to sit and rest for a minute. And the scripture says this, A woman from Samaria, starting in verse 7, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. and He would have given you living water. And then, a few verses later, he says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become to him a spring and it will never be thirsty again. The water I give to him will be eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and will not have to keep coming back to this well to draw water. And he goes on to say, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, You are right. And he goes on to tell her every moment of her life the deep, dark, and shameful parts for her. And after revealing himself to this woman as God, the Messiah, the Savior, the God who sees all, it said that the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And she said to all the people, Come come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She walks away like Hagar, a flesh and bone reminder for her community of God's attentiveness to her, a God who saw everything and loved her anyways. Two women, one Egyptian, one Samaritan. Both forgotten by those in their midst, both outsiders in their community, both forgotten and hurt by the chaos brought into this world at the hands of others and two wells. Both places where they encounter God. Two names Elroy, the God who sees me, and Messiah, the Savior, the consistency of God in the scriptures. God remains faithful despite the plans and the pains of others that we experience in our own lives. And in the deepest depth of our wilderness, He is the God who both sees and the God that hears. In the 1800s, there was a hymn writer named Fanny Crosby. Shortly after her birth, she contracted an eye infection. And due to poor treatment, which was mustard being put on her eyes, which for the record is sold in the food section, not the pharmacy section. Due to the poor treatment from doctors, she became blind shortly after birth. She wrote hymns for the rest of her life. One of the hymns that she wrote was called, Pass Me Not, Gentle Savior. It opens like this, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. While you're calling on everybody else, Well, everybody else is receiving promises. Don't pass me by as I sit here. Don't pass me by blind. And he didn't. Though she was blind, she penned over 8,000 hymns. So many, in fact, that she started publishing them under pseudonyms because those that published hymnals were reluctant to include so many hymns by one person. The Lord wastes no experience in the wilderness. He sees us in each moment. He makes us promises that reach far beyond our wildest imaginations, even in the midst of incredible pain. And people who have experienced this God who sees and hears have seen him firsthand and seen his faithfulness, just like Hagar and just like the woman at the well. They cannot keep the goodness of God to himself. And this faithfulness, it changes us. It leads us to worship. It leads us to lives of remembrance of him. And this book that we have, We walk with it in our lives. We learn from the characters in it. We seek to understand the lives and the stories of those contained in it. We see it as both the historical underpinnings of our faith and the spiritual underpinnings of who God made us to be as people after his own heart. You see, in all of the switchbacks of scripture, in all of the moments that seem empty, in all of the moments that seem hard, God is working all of those moments out. And so my prayer for you today is this, that in the long, often winding road you take as you wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled, that you would listen for, listen to, and be faithful to his voice only. That in the middle of the wilderness of your life, that you would meet God, you would learn what it looks like to call him by name. and That your life would be lived in demonstration of his great love, for you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a God that sees. You are Elroy. God, that you are a God that hears us. That in the middle of of incredibly difficult moments, incredibly difficult weeks, that, that God, that we are never outside of your sight and never outside of your ear. That you are listening to us. That you are walking with us. That you are doing life with us. That you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. God, help us to live our lives in remembrance of that. Help us to be walking and living and breathing demonstrations of your great love for us. And God, just like in this story, help us to be able to learn from your word, to learn from your people, God, and for our lives to continue to be more and more close to what you imagine and dream and plan for us. In your name we pray. Amen.